0: In December of 2020, two different COVID vaccines began being distributed across the United States, just nine months after the nation went into isolation. Many have been left wondering, just how does this help us get back to normal? Welcome to the Inside OSU podcast. I'm your host, Megan Robinson. Joining me today is Dr. Jennifer Rudd, a faculty member at the College of Veterinary Medicine with a PhD in respiratory infectious disease. In this episode, we break down the vaccine approval process, vaccine effectiveness, and how we can achieve herd immunity. Dr. Rudd, what is your background in medicine?
1: Yeah, uh, so I am a veterinarian. I actually graduated from Oklahoma State University from the College of Veterinary Medicine and went into small animal practice for a few years before I came back to join academia. And so my route to get back into academia here at Oklahoma State was to come and do my PhD. And I did my PhD in uh, respiratory infectious diseases, studying influenza virus actually in people, which is always a little surprising when we talk about being a veterinarian and yet our research is primarily in human medicine at times and that's kind of what I do and so once I completed that PhD that allowed me to walk into faculty here and so I am on faculty at the College of Veterinary Medicine I teach second year veterinary students infectious diseases and I do a lot of research and most of my research that I'm doing is in respiratory infectious disease including COVID-19.
0: But how does your background in veterinary medicine really translate to that research.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, when we think of what it takes to become a veterinarian, we go through four years of professional school. And in that process, we learn about multiple different species, right? So we do dogs, cats, cattle, horses, um, everything in between. And once we graduate, we have that understanding from multiple different aspects of medicine. On top of that, as a veterinarian, a lot of what we do has to do with food safety, herd health and how we approach populations of animals from that herd health standpoint. And as much as humans don't like to think of themselves as animals, we really are, right? And so we're prepared to kind of view that population from that overarching herd health approach. And so that sets us up right off the bat with having just a better perspective, a really interesting perspective coming into, uh, especially from a research aspect from that side. We also have a lot of training in vaccinations different types of vaccinations, different types of treatments and protocols, preventive disease and respiratory diseases, and even more specifically, coronaviruses. So we've been dealing with coronaviruses in veterinary medicine for decades and decades. We've got coronaviruses in pigs and cattle in dogs in, in cats. And so we have all of this training from different types of viruses that we can now translate into what we're seeing in people and try and bring that perspective and approach with ways to better mitigate or control the outbreak we're seeing right now.
0: That's also fascinating to me because you think that humans and animals are so different, but you're proving that you, know, you can actually find some similarities in their health systems that can mm-hmm. be
1: applied to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at our core, we're the same, you know, in a lot of ways. And we talk about the physiology of how of how our bodies work, right, the way we respond to infectious diseases, our immune responses that we have, there is so much overlap between what we see in animals and what we see in people. And so even when we talk about as veterinarians walking into research models, for example, animal models, right, to try and look at these diseases in people, you know, it's, it's not very realistic to say, well, we're gonna bring in a whole bunch of people right off the bat and test some things, right? But we can have controlled ethical settings where we can look at animal models for disease. And so a lot of what we do and what we're trained to do is try and set up some of those models as well and look at it from that perspective. And as someone with a PhD in
0: respiratory infectious diseases, I'm sure you have learned about other plagues and pandemics over hundreds of years. But we've advanced so much technology and so much medically since, you know, the bubonic plague or the flu in the early 1900s would you ever think that we'd be experiencing
1: something like we're experiencing with the coronavirus? You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. I, it, I think in 2017, I was actually sitting in a conference. I was finishing up my PhD and I was sitting in an emerging infectious disease conference in Arlington, Virginia, and the keynote speaker, surprisingly, was Fauci. It was Dr. Fauci. So, We're sitting there, this is my first time to have ever seen him in person. I know who he is, because I'm in that field, right? So he's one of those people that now is kind of just a common household name, but in my field, he's been a big part of the changes and the progress that we've seen in infectious disease in the U.S. for decades at this point. So it's a privilege to even sit and listen to him talk. Remember, this is 2017, right? So we don't really know what's coming. And he stood there in front of us and he said, I think within the next five to 10 years, we are going to see what will most likely be a global pandemic, Said so it's either gonna be a coronavirus or it's gonna be influenza virus. And I remember almost scoffing a little bit at, at it then, and at the same time thinking, we have all of the warning signs, for this. We we can fully predict that this is going to happen. And his point at the time was we have got to be preparing for this as a nation. Like we have to have our policies and pandemic preparedness in place as if this is going to happen. And of course there were so many failings <laughs> in that preparedness that hopefully this time through we're going to learn from and not be in this position again. But as far as is this predictable? I I wish it hadn't been, but it sure seems like most of us weren't totally blindsided by the emergence of the disease. I do think as a whole, we've been blindsided by the extent of it. Just seeing it so vastly spread worldwide and just to hit the United States so hard has been a real tragedy of all this. This next question is
0: very broad. And I know that you've been researching this coronavirus and other respiratory infectious diseases for years. But in these last 10 months or so, what have you learned in your research about COVID-19?
1: I think one of the things that has stood out to me the most is the, the difficulty in educating the general public about how science works. This has been a real challenge for my field. Typically, scientists are given some space. You know, we have time to run experiments, organize experiments, collect data, take that data, organize it, and try and interpret that. And what we're really seeing right now is that the world is is peering over our shoulders. And I don't blame them for that, right? We're all just, we want this to be over. And so the world is watching as we collect that data. But we haven't had a chance to really take it all interpret it and put it in light and context with the limitations of the study and what we know and the time that we've had to look at it. And so that has been a real challenge from that, the communication education standpoint, because what that looks like to the general public is, oh, well, they said to do this and now they're saying to do this. So do they really know what they're talking about? Right. We saw that back in March when they were like, I don't think the masks are really going to do much. Right. And then now we're like, oh, no, no, no. like, really, we we need to be wearing masks. And so that narrative has changed. And that can really break down the foundation of what people of the faith that people put into science when they see that happen. But most people aren't trained in the scientific process. And so trying to find ways to communicate that to the general public to be like, No, this is how it works. You know, we build our data, we interpret it. And as we collect more and more, we're going to know more and more about that. So That's not specific to my research, but that's just a generality. To answer a general question, it's a generality about science as a whole um, that has really been quite quite eye-opening. My research specifically is studying immune responses. But when we we study these immune responses, that's been a big part of what we've learned about COVID on a more specific side, too. Because when we talk about severe disease with COVID, It's often more linked to what our body is doing than what the virus itself is doing. So it's our immune response to that virus that's driving that severe disease that that people end up hospitalized uh, or on a ventilator for. And so, you know, we're learning more and more about that and understanding that immune response is going to be a big part of learning ways to control it. Right. And to treat it. And so we've come a really long way since March on treatment options, on how to handle hospitalized patients, and then of course, vaccinations and preventive, public health mitigation, masks, hand washing, distancing, and the the efforts that all those really do seem to add to controlling disease. We're all kind of learning as we go. As you
0: just mentioned, doctors say one thing one week and then the next, it's different because they have new information and i think one of the big things with the coronavirus is the vaccine and how quickly it came to fruition and people are a little a little on edge about getting it because they're like this took less than a year this is not normal but what people don't realize is that for a vaccine on a normal timeline it takes years to get funding. It takes years to go through things. And the funding was there for this because they're like, this is very important. We need to get this done. So it's not that steps were skipped. They were just accelerated because people realized how important it was to get a vaccine researched and in the works. Mm -hmm. So why were they able to get this done so quickly?
1: Yeah, so you are absolutely right about the the prioritized need here, right? So right off the bat, you have to have companies that are already pretty well established in vaccine development. So they know what they're doing. Pfizer, Moderna, they know what they're doing. Johnson & Johnson, they've been doing this, right? They have, they've figured out vaccine development. So now what you're, what you're alluding to, and, and you're absolutely right, is we're essentially taking a, a you know 10-year process and we're saying, how quickly can we do this? And that has been one of the most amazing transformations of medicine that we've seen this year, is how to get that vaccine process into such a short time frame. We still have phase one of vaccine development, phase two, and phase three, and each of those phases has a certain number of people that are enrolled to look at is this vaccine safe, right? What kind of side effects do we see? Is it effective? Do we even have an immune response? None of these steps were skipped. We still had, I think it's about 60,000 people, for example, that were enrolled in the Pfizer study. So what happens is they give about half of those placebo, right? They give about half of them the vaccine, and then they have to develop a trial that can be done a little bit quicker. And so with some vaccines, we look at a lot of different things. We look at viral shedding after vaccination. We look at the prevention of severe or moderate disease. With Pfizer and Moderna, what we did is we said, you know, we can shorten this, too, by let's just focus on are we preventing disease, And so they're still working on data for viral shedding, for can we still transmit even with vaccination? There's a lot of questions still being answered. But instead, what we've done is we've focused on the fact that these vaccines prevent severe disease and they do it and they do it really effectively. On top of that, the adverse reaction rate is really low. And so there are no steps that are skipped in here, that the phases go as normal, the number of people enrolled go as normal, and then the, the time frame that we give post-second vaccination for the, the trial is still as normal. So we gave a full eight weeks post that second vaccination to look for adverse effects, which when we talk about adverse effects with vaccination, those typically occur within the first six weeks after that second dose. And so that gives more than enough time to evaluate those kinds of things. You know, one of the things that we we don't know yet is gonna be long-term immunity. So that is our biggest question. And that is where we simply come down to. We just haven't given it time, right? We need time post-trial to evaluate what is the long-term immunity here. And it's looking pretty good, but we still have some questions as to what that's going to be. So, yeah, there are questions to be answered, but they're, it's not a rushed process. It's a well-thought-out, well-planned process. It's just streamlined and well-funded, which allowed it to happen really quickly.
0: And I just want to point out that you got your first dose of the vaccine today. So super exciting for you.
1: (laughs) I actually got my first dose uh, less than an hour ago, and I am sitting here doing well, and I haven't grown a third arm yet. So, you know, things are going great so far. You'll Um, have to keep me updated on that just in case one one pops up. We'll do a follow-up interview. I will. Although, you know, I have two young kids at home and I've joked that having a third arm maybe would be a benefit right now. So,
0: (laughs) I, I have not gotten my vaccine yet, but people compare it a lot to a flu shot. I get flu shots every year, but I can still get the flu. So with this vaccine, what is the intention and the purpose of this vaccine? What does it essentially
1: do? We have two vaccines right now that are approved in the US. They have what we call emergency usage approval and that's the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, these are actually both the very similar platforms. They're both what we call mRNA vaccines. If I heard someone else use this analogy and I thought it was pretty good. It's essentially like giving your body a wanted poster of a really good picture of what they're looking for and then that wanted poster disappears after a little while but your body remembers it right and so they have that image in there and then when they see what they're looking for show up they now know to react to it and so with these vaccines that are currently out these are not live virus vaccines. You're not getting COVID um, from this vaccine, you're getting mRNA. All it is, is just a little message that's encoding a protein within your cell that basically sets up that immune response to COVID and and it specifically is giving a message about what we call the spike protein, which if you guys have seen those images of coronavirus that show up all over media and so you see those EM type microscopy images and you can see all those little spikes that stick out from that virus particle. That's what we're trying to train the body for. It's not the rest of that virus, we're telling it to recognize that spike protein and so that way when we do actually see it our body will recognize it and then we'll have an antibody response already set up to try and combat that but you're not getting the virus itself so you can't get covid from the vaccine all you're getting is mrna that's in basically encapsulated in a little fat and so the vaccine itself all it is is salt sugar fat And mRNA. And our bodies have mRNA all the time. Like these are in our cells all the time, and we know how to get rid of it. We break it down quickly. So these are not foreign substances. It's literally the protein they're encoding for, what is going to be foreign to our body and stimulate that immune response. You see it on social media. They're like, I don't know what's in this vaccine. I'm not going to get it.
0: I know everything that you just yeah said with the exception yeah. of mrna but you just taught me what that is so now i know what's in it and i'm like you know what yes <laughs> there's nothing that i need to be worried about because i put that stuff in my body anyway
1: yeah there's really not you know these are very basic vaccines as far as the ingredients that go in them. But when we talk about the mRNA vaccines, they really don't have, they don't even have antibiotics in them because we don't have to grow any kind of virus to create this vaccine. We just make the mRNA. These are really quick to produce. The rare times we see allergic reactions to these, it's usually to those lipids, those, those fats, that the mRNA is encapsulated in to be able to get it into our bodies. And even that, I mean, one of, there's only about three or four of them and one of those is like cholesterol. I mean, we we have these things in our body. And again, salt's there just to control the pH and acidity of it. Sugar's there to make sure all the little lipid particles don't stick together like these are pretty basic things and that sugar is is the sugar exactly what you're thinking of you know table sugar and so these are these are all pretty pretty basic ingredients in here with the mrna vaccines
0: what is herd immunity can you explain what herd
1: immunity is sure yeah so this herd immunity is a really important concept one of the things that i just want to point out right up front with herd immunity is there is more than one way to achieve herd immunity. So herd immunity is essentially having enough people in a population that have immunity to the disease that when it's introduced into that population, it can't get out of control, right? So think of it as like, if there are 10 people in a room and let's say none of them have any immunity, you haven't ever seen this virus before, and someone walks in that's infected and they cough and sneeze everywhere, we have 10 people that are susceptible to disease. And so the chances are pretty high that you're going to have multiple people that end up with that virus and then can go and spread it to other people. Now let's say that same person walks into a room where seven or eight of them have immunity. Now the chances are much lower that you're gonna see that spread outside of that room. In fact, the chances, it may even not happen at all. What if that infected person never really gets around to talking to the one or two people that don't have immunity? And so we see enough of a roadblock in spread that we can take that to control transmission of infection and we can tamper it back down into something that is below a pandemic level but we can achieve immunity through more than one way right we can we can get immunity from getting infected and so natural infection you get exposed you get an infection You're going to be shedding virus through that. Of course, you have a risk of severe disease and even death with that. But if you survive it, you get an immune response, right? And so you build up that natural immunity that way. And that's certainly one way that we can achieve herd immunity. But another alternative to that is to try and achieve herd immunity through vaccination, right? And so that's going to be a much safer approach, for trying to achieve herd immunity. In the, the history of, of science that we know of, we have never eliminated a virus through natural infection immunity. It's never happened. So if we were just to say, there's no vaccines out there for COVID, let's just let everyone get COVID and eventually it's just gonna disappear. There's no precedent to think that's even possible. It may get to a point eventually, where it's tampered back enough that it's not a pandemic, but we're still gonna see it circulate. We're not gonna be able to eliminate that. We have actually successfully eliminated diseases through vaccination. Uh, through herd, herd immunity, through vaccination. So there is some small potential that we could eliminate COVID through vaccination. I think the chances are rare with that, but it, it's at least there. We've done it with smallpox and we're very close to eliminating polio. And that's those are through vaccination efforts. And so it, it brings that potential for elimination.
0: Even if we don't completely eradicate COVID-19 with a vaccine, it will significantly improve our establishment of herd immunity
1: absolutely so so what we're looking at right now uh, scientists predict that out of every 10 people on average we need seven or eight of them to have immunity for us to have what we would call herd immunity so we need to get to a point where 70 to 80 percent of the population has some form of immunity in the united states we have 330 million people okay And I did look that up. Of those 330 million people, we would need about 250 million of them to have some form of immunity. Currently, we've had what we know of. We have about 23 million cases of COVID, natural infection. Chances are very good that that number is probably three to five times higher than that. But that's what we know. Those are positive tests that are counted, right? So 23 million cases. And to get there, we've had 380,000 deaths. If we were to continue without vaccination and say, let's try and achieve herd immunity through natural infection, like let's just let people get exposed, you know, most of them are asymptomatic to mild, no big deal, right? Except that of those 23 million cases, 380,000 of them have died. And so if we were to keep that going in the U.S. just to get to that 250 million mark, We're going to be losing between one and five million people to COVID. To give you some reference, Oklahoma is only 3.9 million people. So think of it as like every single person in the entire state. That's the equivalent of the potential population just in the U.S. that we could be losing to COVID. So those are really big numbers. And at the end of the day, when you think of it that way, that's just unethical, right, to try and push us to that point, because that's just that is way too many people to lose. When we talk about achieving this for, through vaccination, the chances of having a fatality from vaccination are almost zero. You know, these are incredibly low numbers of even having a reaction to the vaccine. And if those who have the reaction, we're not seeing fatalities with those. Even these severe anal- anaphylactic reactions that are, you know, I think it's like 10 people per million doses, so really low numbers. Um, Even of those, they are not ending in fatalities. So we can get to that 250 million mark much, much safer through vaccination than we can through natural infection.
0: Two follow-up points to that. One, how long are they estimating it's going to take to get 250 million people in the United States vaccinated.
1: Right now, we've got Pfizer and Moderna, right? And we have, they're producing a lot of doses of vaccine, enough to vaccinate quite a few people by the end of 2021. We're hopefully going to be adding a few more vaccines options to that pretty soon too. There's Johnson & Johnson, there's AstraZeneca, the Oxford vaccine. There's Novavax, which is a protein-based vaccine. The more vaccines we can add in there that are getting produced, the faster we can get to that number. Part of it is going to be largely dependent on people choosing to get vaccinated, right? And at the end of the day, it it is still a personal choice of whether or not you go and get vaccinated. We now are collecting enough data to feel pretty comfortable with vaccinating pregnant women. If you're breastfeeding, we are collecting data to try and broaden the age range. You know, right now you have to be over the age of 16 to receive the vaccine, but there are trials ongoing to work on lowering that age down to 12. As we broaden that category of people that are eligible to receive the vaccine, things are going to start moving even quicker. The estimates that I've seen predict that we can get this pandemic under control in anywhere from probably five to seven months. And to me, that sounds a little bit optimistic on that five-month range, but realistically, by fall of this year, I think we can get things, if people choose to get vaccinated, we can get this to a level that at least starts to feel more normal.
0: My second point of clarification in regards to herd immunity and infection versus vaccine, people think that if they've already had COVID-19, then they are not going to get it a second time.
1: Yeah, so so there's some really interesting stuff coming out on reinfection. What I will say is once you have had it once, there is a pretty good immune response there. Again, we don't know how long that immune response is going to last, but probably at least several months. But even with that, we are seeing these cases pop up of people that are now getting it twice. And these are true reinfections, not just I got COVID and it never really went away and now it's rearing its head again. These are I got COVID, it went away, I was re exposed and reinfected. And those are still happening in relatively small numbers. So it's not like everybody that gets COVID is going to get reinfected when they're exposed again. But some people are, and some of those are even more severe than they were the first time through. And so that risk of reinfection is definitely there. The other aspect of this to consider is that when we create vaccines, our goal is generally to create a vaccine that creates better lasting immunity than natural infection does. And so it is still highly recommended that even if you've already had COVID, you go ahead and get that vaccine, number one, to protect you from reinfection, but also to push your immunity out significantly longer than what it would be otherwise. So you might find that after natural infection, you had, you had COVID maybe six months ago, and maybe within the next couple months, your immunity from natural infection is gonna be gone, but the pandemic's not gone, right? And so that vaccination will booster that and rebuild that back up to where now you can have a lasting immunity for a year or two years. And so that's a really big step for trying to get that pandemic under control.
0: Once you get the vaccine or you know, in the Moderna and Pfizer cases, both doses of that vaccine, how long does it take to essentially become effective?
1: So this is a really good question because the two vaccines that we have right now are both vaccines that require two doses. That's not gonna be true of every vaccine we end up with approval with. I suspect that we will soon have approval, like I mentioned before, to the AstraZeneca, to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the Novavax vaccine. They're finishing up collecting the data on those and they're looking really good. When we talk about the two that we have now, Moderna and Pfizer, these are two doses. The Pfizer, we do the first dose and then three weeks later, you do the second dose. Moderna, you get the first dose and it's four weeks later, you get the second dose. So they're just a little bit different on that. You get some pretty decent immunity with that first dose. So you get the first dose. I think Pfizer's numbers are, you know, between 50 to 60 percent protection. So that's saying that you have. A significant amount of protection from severe disease, even with just one dose. However, three weeks later, you get that second dose you rebooster that immune response, and when you do, we see that efficacy go up to like 95%. So that's a really great number, right? And now that's based on phase three trials. So those are ideal settings. Those numbers are really high. There's a slight difference between efficacy in a trial and what we see in real world. And so those numbers will drop a little bit as we start to collect real world data with these, but that's a great starting point. And so those two doses are really gonna booster that. Now, where we see that 95% efficacy in trials, that's not immediately following that second dose. That's about two weeks out from that. So we're not gonna have any kind of immune response, even with the first dose, we're not gonna have any kind of immune response of antibodies until at least a week after that. And so for example, I got my vaccine this morning, it's gonna be a week before my body starts making enough antibodies to start to detect those and see an immune response. We've seen new strains come out in the UK
0: and Europe. What have studies shown about the effectiveness of the vaccine versus these new strains that are emerging?
1: Yeah, so this is another really great question because it's a big area of concern, right? We are doing our absolute best to get this pandemic under control. And one of the things that could derail that is the emergence of a strain that our vaccines do not work for anymore, right? Because that's going to be a really big problem. Now, we see viruses, viruses mutate pretty frequently. Um, And in particular, coronavirus, coronaviruses are RNA viruses. And don't worry too much about that other than RNA viruses tend to mutate at slightly higher rates than some of our other viruses. But coronavirus is not this crazy high mutation rate like flu is. Or something like that we all know the challenges of flu and how we can't really predict what happens every year and we have a lot of challenges with vaccinating for flu coronaviruses don't move that fast but they still move they still mutate and every time they do that can make them a little bit better a little worse or not change them at all and as long as those mutations are small you may not even they may not even become a new strain they may not change the behavior in any way for that virus but what we're seeing right now in the UK with the B117 lineage virus, that's the official lineage name for the strain there, is that we have seen a change in behavior with the virus. And so there's enough of a mutation that has changed the way that spike protein and several other parts of that virus have worked that even though we don't necessarily see more severe disease with it, we see a much faster spread. With that particular virus. And so, as soon as you have a strain that emerges that is spread faster, it now has an advantage to the other strains and it can start to outcompete them. And so, the question becomes do our vaccines still recognize that? that particular strain, even with those changes to what it looks like, right? Is our immune response still going to recognize that? The good news is, is that the vaccines we currently have approved are looking really good for still recognizing the strains that are out there right now. So there's another strain that has popped up in South Africa that's pretty worrisome, as well as the ones that we're seeing in Europe. And our vaccinations are still efficacious for those there is still a concern that strains are going to continue to emerge and it is possible that at some point we could have a strain develop that will significantly drop efficacy of a vaccination that we've produced thankfully we don't seem to be at that point yet all the more reason to try and slow the spread of the virus because the faster it spreads, the more likely we are to see these strains emerge. And so wearing a mask, distancing, following your public health guidelines, and then getting vaccinated when you have the chance and eligibility to do so, that's all gonna be, these are really important to hopefully keeping us from getting to that point of dealing with a strain that we have to redevelop a vaccine for. On the other side of that, with these new vaccine technologies, the mRNA vaccine in particular, because we don't have to grow virus to make that happen, we can actually produce those pretty quickly. So even if we do get to a point that we have a strain emerge that our vaccine is not working great for, these companies, probably within six to eight weeks, can reformulate and recreate a vaccine that could work pretty well for those. And so they're, they're working hard to make sure that their vaccines are still working and to try and have that technology ready to go in case we need it. For
0: Oklahoma State's most up-to-date COVID-19 information, check out go.okstate.edu slash coronavirus. And for more Inside OSU podcasts, be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Once again, I'm your host, Megan Robinson. Stay healthy and go Pokes.